Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, Alarmy. Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of our Little Alarms series, only available on Patreon. Yeah, well, anyway, I, I hope that, that whoever Tina saw going into the bookstore with an open can of Red Bull. I hope everything turned out okay. Yeah, we digress. For the book's sake. I'm nervous for the books. I'm nervous for the bookstore owners. Books are so vulnerable. Just a little piece of water. I know, a bunch of paper. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. I know, I know, I know. Mm -hmm. Fire and water are not its friend. I know. No, they're... But it beats They're so sensitive. But it beats rock. Why does it beat rock? Covers it. It's true. And how yeah. does that beat it? People ignore it once it's covered. You can throw a rock at a rock at a book. That's not that's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. But do you oh. throw a fireball or a water ball at a book? That's not a good idea. Yeah. No. No. So throw a rock. Doing, Everyone start going into bookstores with rocks. Okay. This yeah, is definitely this is why making you're a here. lot of sense. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> is that clear, this Tina? This episode of yeah. Little Alarms Tina, you got that? <laughs> not really helpful, but it's educational in so many ways. Okay. Go to patreon.com slash thealarmist and subscribe today. Now, on to our episode. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Lindsay Spence. Lindsay is a biographer and the author of The Grit in the Pearl, The Scandalous Life of Margaret, Duchess of Argyle. 
Let's hear what she has to say about the infamous Duchess. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So I was wondering if you could start off by giving us some background on Margaret Wiggum's early years. Uh, am I saying it correctly? Wiggum? <laughs> Margaret Wiggum? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it, it, it's, Scot- it's Scottish and I, well, actually my whole, my mom's family are from America and okay. I live in Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland's very Scottish. Well, I kind of feel like I can get Margaret a bit because she grew up in America but she has that Scottish mm. background, so it's a nice little little twist. But yeah, no, you're saying it fine. Um, I guess. Um, yeah, what were her parents like, and and what was her upbringing like? Her mother was very very cold. Um, I don't think she wanted to have a child, and of course back then there was very little you could actually do about that. So her parents were married for about seven years before Margaret um came along, and her mother sailed across the Atlantic on her own when she was expecting Margaret and had her at her parents' home, um in the Glasgow suburbs, and Margaret's grandparents didn't really want her there either. They felt like she was just in the way. Um, so I I guess she always had that that sense that she didn't really belong and she was always searching for somebody to accept her. And of course that person was her father who remained behind in New York. Um, she was a total daddy's girl and it got to the point where her mother actually felt slighted. Like she was, she was the one that wasn't welcome in their, their New York apartment. It was just Margaret and George Wiggum. And that was that. And of course, of course, Nanny was there. She adored Nanny. She said, I loved my Nanny, but I didn't love my mother. She respected her mother, but she didn't love her. And I think today we might say that her mother, Helen, was perhaps suffering with like postpartum depression or she had some some mental health issues just reading between the lines. And today she would, I hope, get help for it and it would be more understood. But back then, it really put up that wall between mother and child. And wow. Margaret was a lovely child and she was very, very spoilt and very, very petted on by her father and she didn't really have a normal upbringing as such she was treated more like a little doll she had her first perm when she was seven wow uh, yeah I did too my granny my American <laughs> grandmother was like I just like your straight hair let's make it curly so I can identify to that as well <laughs> as well for anyway yeah just treat it like a little doll a little plaything. and her mother she had a stammer when she was growing up and her mother said, you know, Margaret, it doesn't matter how many lovely things we can buy you and how pretty you are. If you stammer, you will get nowhere in life. Wow. So she had sort of stuck the knife into her, I guess, and gave her that um, that complex growing up that she was very nice to look at. But perhaps she wasn't she wasn't complete in a way. Yes. And and and, and that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like uh, her upbringing changed her how what kind of things did did margaret do um to handle her situation well she always says that she was brought up to have respect for nobody only respect your parents that's it don't respect servants don't respect friends you can do what you want you're superior in a way and although i think she was quite a nice approachable person she had that mindset i guess that there's no accountability for anything you don't take responsibility for anything and I think it was a double-edged sword. It certainly it gave her confidence to go out as a young woman in the 1930s and live her best life, I guess. But in a way, she would, she had no sense of consequence. And I believe when she did meet um, Ian Campbell, her second husband, the Duke of Argyle, um, I believe it it didn't serve its purpose, of course, because she did things and he did things and she couldn't see the bigger picture. She kept walking into his traps. Wow. Now, 
Margaret was presented in court in 1930. What was that experience Mm -hmm. like for her? And how did that make her a staple in the London social scene? Well, Margaret had a cousin called Sybil Wiggum who grew up on Park Avenue and she was very much a Park Avenue princess and was accepted by, you know, the the old moneyed circles of New York and the East Coast. And Margaret felt very inferior to this. And her father and mother decided, well, we're going to give you a massive party in London. Who cares about Sybil's American party? Um, And she had an aunt that um, introduced her at court at Buckingham Palace to the king and queen. Um, But she was never really accepted because there is that hierarchy, even today, not so much, but it's still prevalent today that unless you're born into the aristocracy or you are of the sort of landed gentry, you, you don't belong. And Margaret was seen as very vulgar, very new money, very crass. She could buy her way into society, but she wasn't necessarily welcomed into high society. But she didn't care. She was having the time of her life in 1930. She was debutante of the year. She was beautiful. All the boys fancied her. She fancied them. And she lived quite. She lived a very free life compared to what her life became in the 1960s, which is quite ironic because, you know, in the 60s, you had the women's live movement, you had the pill, you had everything, the swinging 60s. Yet as a young 17, 18, 19-year-old, she had all of this freedom that she would never have again. Wow. It, yes, especially yeah. during that time period in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s. I yes. mean, wow. Yes. Now, who were some of her uh, Margaret's suitors? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell you some of the key ones in the early <laughs> days. So she... <laughs> I have no disrespect for Margaret. I love this about Margaret that she just knew what she wanted and she did it and she was not apologetic. So I, I think we can all take something from that. But yeah, she was with Prince Ali Khan when she was 17 and he wanted to marry her. But her father said, no, Margaret, you will have to become a Muslim. And that's not happening. We're, we're Presbyterians. You're not converting. So they they broke up for I guess, for appearances, but she was still sneaking out and seeing him. And he says, if you don't marry me, I will kill myself. Um, She got got scared and cut it off, but she was with him. Um, She was with a very famous pilot who was much older and he was married and he would send her Cartier jewelry and records. And her mother would say, well, you can keep the records, Margaret, but you have to send the jewelry back. But of course she kept it. Um, He was killed in in a plane crash in the 1930s. Um, she was with Lord Beaverbrook's son, Max. Lord Beaverbrook, of course, was the very rich um, press magnet. Um, she was with his son. And while she was engaged to Max, she was going with Charles Sweeney, who she eventually married. But they didn't like each other very much. It was a weird game they had between each other. Very sadistic, I would say, mm. in hindsight. But she ended up marrying Charles Sweeney when she was 20. Prior to that as well, sorry, I forgot to say she was engaged to an earl. Um, but he had no money, just a title in a sort of a, a a cold castle. And her father says, Margaret, if you're not happy, don't do it. We can call the wedding off at Westminster Abbey. And she did on the eve of the wedding. She called it off. And I think that that is saying something for her self-respect and what mm. she wanted and what she expected. And I quite respect that as well. But yeah, she she ended up with a, an American, Charles Sweeney. He was from quite a rich family. Um, but it's weird because for the first decade, I guess, she was very much a, a traditional wife and mother and a very good mother for the time period. You know, the children weren't just sent off to be with Nanny. Margaret had tea with them in the nursery and really doted on them. But she felt her husband didn't respect her and she wanted to, she didn't have a formal education. So she was reading up in politics and trying to have dinner parties. And he says, um, what's the point, Margaret? Who cares? And she wow. says all he wanted was a, a pretty brainless doll. So she felt very 
disrespect it and she had the self-respect to, to leave him. Wow. Now, yeah. what kind of a media attention did Margaret get during uh, this, the, the early years of her life? Oh my gosh, she was so famous, but for no reason, just, it's just Margaret, Margaret Wiggum, they called her the Wiggum. Um, <laughs> I suppose the first influencer, if you will, people wanted to know what she was wearing and what she was doing and who she was with. Um, and her father had a publicist to really promote her career. I suppose he was like the original Chris Jenner. Um, he was <laughs> promoting, and I mean that in the best possible way. My goodness, they've made a career for themselves, and she has. She had a magnificent career as a socialite. Um, but yeah, she was. It was very much self-promoter, and you know, it worked. Um, and she was just an it girl. Um, she wanted more. She said that I want to do more than just be at charities and go to dances. But nobody could accept her wanting to read and. Oh, be, be intelligent, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that her relationship with Sweeney was a bit sadistic. Um, yes. What was, I, I know that he definitely wanted her to be more submissive, I guess. Um, yes. but, but what was that relationship particularly like? It was weird because, as I said, she was with his best friends and he knew this and they had a weird infatuation going on. I suppose it was a challenge for him to get the Wiggum. Hmm. Um, and she, she says, I love American men. They're my favorite. And he was American, of course, Irish American. Um, and he had no money as such. His family was rich, but he was very much starting out. And to be fair, he, he did it on his own. You know, he, he became a stockbroker and supported his family. Um, but yeah, she said on their honeymoon, they were only into their honeymoon, I think a week. And he was controlling her and getting angry. And she was quite, quite frightened of his temper so she was pretty much living in fear of you know, he was so jealous because he would say well you were with such and such and you danced with such and such and she she started to really I guess walk on eggshells and Margaret uh, experienced a lot of trauma during this time period during her marriage yeah. what, what was that uh, Margaret was desperate to be a mother I, I must say I, maybe I'm going back on myself too much but when she was 14 slash 15 um, she became pregnant to David Niven, who I have to add was also a teenager at the time. There wasn't anything weird going on. Um, mm -hmm. And her mother and father forced her to have an abortion. And it was all swept under the rug and nobody's to mention it ever again. And Margaret always felt like the chief purpose in a woman's life, this is what she thought, obviously, um, was to, to have children and be a good wife and mother. So she was trying her best with Sweeney, but unfortunately, every each time she would get pregnant, she would lose it. So she had a stillborn daughter and she almost died herself. And when she came to, it was her wedding anniversary, and Charles Sweeney basically said, well, darling, it's nice to see you're, you're doing well. I'm away to the nightclub. And just kissed her on the head, and that was the day they broke the news that her child had actually died. Oh. Um, and that, yeah, horrendous. And after that, she had a few, you know, very advanced miscarriages. Um, but he wasn't sympathetic at all. He, he didn't, didn't seem to care, but it, it affected her. Obviously, you know, it affected her a lot. Now, they eventually divorce, and uh, soon after this divorce, Margaret meets Ian Campbell, the Duke of Argyll. Yeah. What is this courtship like? Well, I guess today we would call it love bombing and also stalking. So she, <laughs> she, was, she was stalking him, for lack of a better word. Um, she always says, well, I think it would be quite fun to be a duchess. So she had, she had tried everything else. You know, let's be a duchess, let's have a title. And, of course, it was the oldest... It was the oldest title in Scottish Scottish peerage, I guess. 
and her father was very much all for it and Ian knew this and he swindled her father out of over a million pounds um they renovated Inverary Castle or Inverara as Margaret called it money was just hemorrhaging towards Ian and he went along with it and it just seemed to be everywhere Margaret was and vice versa they would orchestrate these meetings with each other but on the eve of their wedding, um, so Anne was already married and had to get a divorce, and Margaret was listed in the divorce courts. Um, on the eve of their wedding, Anne showed his hand rather quickly and verbally abused her and mm. attacked her children. And she didn't want to go through with it, but she thought of her father and all of the money he had given, and it would just be a massive embarrassment. And she did. She went through with it, and of course, she lived to regret it but yeah he was very very charming up until that point very very submissive and very very pathetic in a way he would he would portray himself as really having nothing and having no confidence and margaret says i love to build a man up mm. and, but project I'm going to yeah i'm going to contradict myself in a way and also acknowledge that he was suffering ptsd after world war ii he was taken prisoner um and he became very reliant on purple hearts the drugs um, so he he did he did have his own demons, and I'm not taking that away from him. Obviously, mm -hmm. he had an addiction and PTSD, but at the same time, he was also very very abusive, very mm -hmm. manipulative. And of course, you're probably going to ask me another question: what what happened next? So I won't I won't get <laughs> I won't get ahead of myself. <laughs> yes, we uh, we have a feeling this is not going to end yeah. well, but <laughs> no, um, don't like she, the ending. No, we're not going to enjoy it. Um, no. the how so the the. The Duke's financial troubles, mm -hmm. are, are they clear to Margaret from the beginning? Does yes. she? Okay. So she knows that she is es essentially funding this entire renovation and that he has nothing when she marries him. His father was a gambler. Um, and I, the Duke was a gambler. And he carried the stigma of he had this addiction and he didn't know how to beat it. Um, but he also sort of says, well, you know, my wives, my wives take so much from me. They're bleeding mm. me dry. But they, they were all heiresses in their own right. They didn't need his money. So he really was, uh, yeah, very narcissistic. Very, he had, he, what does it like they say on Instagram? They have found their other source. Margaret was the new source. Oh. Yeah. That's not nice. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, yeah. How, tell us about... I mean, I, I think very early, you, you mentioned very, very early on, the marriage starts to show its cracks and start to crumble. Yes. How and when does the Duke discover Margaret's letters, journals, photos, and what, what's leading up to this discovery? So leading up to this discovery is Margaret gets very, very tired of being verbally abused. She doesn't like being in Ferrari Castle. She's a very social butterfly. She doesn't like being in the Highlands and being cut off. And I guess that's what he wants to do. He wants to cut her off and do all of those horrible narcissistic things. But she starts to get really despondent. You know, he, he lies on the sofa all day smoking and drinking and he sleeps until lunchtime and he has no get up and go. And she said she can't respect that because her father was such a hard worker. And even Charlie Sweeney was such a hard worker. That's It's very new to her that this man just has no purpose in life. But she tries to help him. She she turns her, her London home into a replica of White's Club. So he can go there and get smashed basically in the library and do what he has to do. But he's he's under her roof. She had her own home in London that her father gave her. Um, 
So she tries to help him in a way, but he doesn't want help. He just wants money. He wants more and more money. And her father cuts him off and he cuts her off. And he says, Margaret, I can't give you any more money. He has to help himself. So he decides that he needs another woman to take care of him. So he starts to sort of push Margaret away, you know, to force Margaret to file for a divorce. But of course she won't. She doesn't want to have a divorce. She wants to have an open marriage. She's okay with him having affairs and vice versa. But she doesn't want to go through that again. So Ian decides, well, I have to get rid of her because I need another, another, I guess, trust fund yeah. to exploit. And that's really what happened. He was trying to find anything. Well, Margaret, they say Margaret was a nymphomaniac and this and that. I don't agree with that. Margaret had a lot of um, male friends who were gay. And of course, back then it was a crime. And she was there, their front, I guess, what do they call it, their beard. She would, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, she would go clubbing with them and meet the parents and all of these things. And to her credit, when he was saying, these are your boyfriends, these are your lovers, she never says, well, no, they're not because they're gay. She just went, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, I'm sleeping with them. So I quite admire that, that she didn't expose her friends. Um, but yeah, that's really what happened. He needed, he needed another supply and he mm. needed more money and he needed to get rid of Margaret. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Alarmist. 
what is the actual evidence he finds? So when Margaret and the Duke of Argyll go to Australia and New Zealand in the 1950s to raise money for Clan Campbell. Well, for him, basically, he's away talking, speaking to clans who are very patriotic, um, the Scottish clans. Um, he discovers her appointment diaries, and Margaret was, I guess she had a narcissistic streak. She kept diaries, and she loved to plan in advance and have four-year diaries um, planned so she could compare what she was doing the year before, like, oh, I was with such and such, but this year I'm at such and such. And she was meticulous in planning and everything, when she put an X in her diary or calendar, he was like, well, that's when she's having sex with somebody that I don't know. And he really <laughs> manipulated and fabricated this false life that she had all of these boyfriends and was a nymphomaniac and was sleeping with everybody. She always denied it. She was like, no, it's like I'm going to get my hair done. <laughs> and he wouldn't. He didn't believe it. I believe her. I believe her because she was very truthful in a way. You know, she would say yes or what. Um, so he did that and he stole her diaries, but it wasn't enough. So when she was in New York, I believe he broke into her London home and he ransacked it looking for letters. And of course she had letters from everybody. She kept everything and he pulled a piece of furniture away and he discovered an envelope and inside there were old Polaroid photos of Margaret and the headless man. Obviously you can't see the guy from the neck up and they're very explicit Polaroids and he steals them and he gives them to his barrister in Edinburgh and it's it's used against Margaret. You know, he he, yeah. he gets revenge in a pretty spectacular way. Now, the, the, the divorce proceedings turn into a full-out trial. At least that's what it feels like. What was... Uh, what was she accused of? What, what, why did these accusations matter? What is it? What is the actual legality that is Margaret is defending herself from? Yes. He never had substantial evidence that she had committed adultery. He had spies following her, taking photographs. He never had solid evidence that she had committed adultery. And that was the grounds he was suing her for. Um, the photographs, believe it or not, even though everybody then discovered that Margaret had taken these explicit photographs and they were wondering who the headless man was, the photographs were never used as proper evidence. It isn't what swung the divorce in Ian's favor. It was a very obscure letter that was written to Margaret. Um, and there was comings and goings with Margaret and her friend who was gay. They, he would come and they'd walk the dogs and he would stay and leave her home at like three in the morning. And of course, that was evidence that Margaret had a, a gentleman caller to stay and was obviously sleeping with him. But the twist is Lord Wheatley, who presided over um, the divorce case, he was a cousin of Ian Campbell's. He was a member of Glen Campbell. Wow. Ian was a Catholic. Lord Wheatley was a very staunch Catholic. In fact, his sentences were very, very harsh towards people who had committed sex crimes. So adultery, bigamy, all of those things. And he wanted to make an example of Margaret. And I think Margaret was treated very, very unfairly during the hearing. Yes. And so did, a lot of, so did a lot of women who were in the gallery. They thought she was treated very, very poorly. Now, you mentioned that, you know, she fell into, into Ian's traps and uh, she tried to defend herself. Yes. How, how did she try to, to do this? And why do you think she dug her heels and just refused to give in to Ian's terms did, did she have some sort of plan <laughs> I think she was trapped I think it's like when anybody's going at you and you're in litigation and you're trapped in this endless cycle of lawyers and legal fees and your friends are falling away and being manipulated against you 
you do feel very trapped. And I don't think you think rationally. You're in survival mode. And I believe she just thought, well, I'm a strong woman. I can fight back. But she didn't plan it very well. You know, sometimes when I was when I was researching the book, I was like, why, Margaret? Why? She was forging letters. You know, when you see in cartoons where people cut things from magazines and newspapers, she was cutting letters and pretending that his ex-wife was making these big confessions that Ian's sons weren't his. And of course, one was the heir to the dukedom of Cam of of Argyle. He was heir to the dukedom of Argyle, sorry. And that was a big embarrassment for Ian. Um, it wasn't true, obviously, but Margaret was grasping at straws. And then Margaret tried to fabricate a pregnancy. Um, so she could say, well, your children are illegitimate, which is such a horrible term today. Well, your children aren't really yours. I'm carrying your son. He is the heir to the victim yeah. of Argyle. <laughs> and her friends were like, Margaret, don't be ridiculous. And she did. She planned to go to, I believe it was Venice, and buy a child and hide away and come home wow. and be like, here is your son. <laughs> it's zero to a hundred, isn't it? You know, one minute we're we're defending her, and the next minute we're like, Margaret, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it shows you it shows you the desperation she must have felt, you know, mm -hmm. to try and get try and get back at him, and in a very silly, sneaky, childlike way, you know, like if you kick me, I'll destroy your favorite toy, kind of thing. Um, yeah. Uh, now, and of course, that went against her. She was seen as a complete fantasist just an unhinged woman yes yeah what, what what role do you think the media played in the sense sensationalization of this divorce well it was really a soap opera wasn't it so it's 1963 at this point it's been going on for a long long time um it's the the chatterley you know the whole lady chatterley scandal they're trying to ban that book you've got uh perfumo and his girls christine keeler and mandy rice davies the whole scandal at the government level. And then Margaret and Margaret says, well, you know what? I'm quite happy to take the, take the onus off you girls. I'll take, take one for the team in a way. And they're like, <laughs> they thought that was quite um, egotistical to say, but yeah, she's really caught up in this, this, the scandal that's happening at the heart of, I guess, British politics and the, the upper classes. And, you know, the, the aristocracy really resented her because they're saying, we know we're badly behaved. We have mistresses and children and lovers. We don't need it like in the tabloids. So she had, blown the lid off all of that respectability and we're the we, we're the ruling classes and you'll do what I say you know the working classes were loving it it was a real soap opera and you know a lot of people were very much team Margaret you know let him have it he's no better than us so <laughs> I th thought that was quite funny what what was the result of the proceedings and how did the judge rule and um how did that fare for Margaret well, it didn't fare too well. She wasn't even at court for the, the final hearing. She was in Paris with her boyfriend. Um, yeah, the judge liked to swish his robes and he read out this massive statement that went on forever, calling her, you know, a disgusting, depraved, overly sexed, hypersexualized woman. Um, not in the best lights, but at this point, Margaret, she had a, a slogan when she was a child. She just said, Sava, <laughs> it is what it is. I moved on and I quite admire that. Margaret was in Paris and Ian, he had a bonfire with his servants and got married like six weeks later. So it was true. He was also committing adultery. But I don't know if you were going to ask me this in a question, but this is the part that I find really, really horrible. And also as a, a woman too, in, in the age of the internet, not that I've done anything bad on the internet, but I'm sure a lot of people can. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a lot. I don't have a smartphone. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. Um, those images were taken 
way before she knew Ian. She was divorced. She was 30. She had an American boyfriend. She had one of the first Polaroid cameras she brought back from New York. They put on the self-timer and they took really goofy photos of each other. The boyfriend had a copy. Margaret had a copy. It had nothing to do with Ian. It was none of his business. And yet he used those pictures against her. And Mm -hmm. it really altered the course of her life. You know, she had spent so much on legal fees. She was always in litigation. She was seen as an easy target in the future. You know, she had all these stupid um, cases against her for Mm. defamation and all kinds of things. Um, She lost her money. She Mm. ended up really just living and dying in poverty. Now, did she ever reveal the identity of the headless man? Do we know? Mm. Well, I when I when, well I do because whenever whenever I was researching, um, I went through a list of her suitors, for lack of a better mm. word, um, and one was called Joe Thomas, and he was a, a Texan-born New York stockbroker, very very handsome, very cool. I can see why Margaret like fell for him, but <laughs> I contacted his son, who is now dead. He died during COVID quite sadly, but he oh. was a, an author in his own right. And he wrote to me, and I have it in the book with his permission, the the extract. He was saying, you know, when I was 12, I was going through my dad's tr- my dad's traveling trunks, and I discovered an envelope, and I looked inside it, and I was like, wow, who's this brunette? The dad had, obviously <laughs> had a copy of the pictures. I was like, okay, right, enough. I don't need to know. And then my mom said, did he show you the pictures? And I says, no, of course not. No, he didn't. Um, but his dad was bringing his new stepmother over, and he thought, well, I can't wait for this. He thought it was Margaret and he brought this like plain blonde woman over and he's like, well, who's the woman in the pictures? And he, he carried that with him. And you know, it makes sense because she used to drop hints like, I love American men. I brought the first Polaroid camera over, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, there was a big thing. Like, was it Douglas Fairbanks Jr.? Was it Winston Churchill's son-in-law? No. It was no. the stockbroker. But that's not <laughs> as exciting, I don't think. I think Margaret quite liked the whole... I don't want to say the gossip, but, you know, she was getting one over on these guys that thought they were invincible. They were getting pulled in and saying, were you sleeping with the Duchess? Is this you in the photograph? Mm -hmm. And the court actually made some of them get medical examinations to prove they weren't the guy in the photo. And all the while, (laughs) Margaret is like, yeah, (laughs) it's lying. I think it's quite funny. Yes, I I think you're totally right in that it was at the time kind of the only thing she could do to assert some kind of control yeah Yeah. this this folds into my next question if margaret had been a man do you think the story would have a different outcome would we be talking about this well we would be talking about it in a very heroic way i think like what a guy you know it would be Mm. it would be like valentino wouldn't he the, the silent film star not the designer <laughs> I don't <want> get <laughs> he would be very it would be, he would be it would be a hero wouldn't he? he would be sort of high-fived and it would be it would be celebrated and I think quite funny and just a piece of gossip but with Margaret you know it, it really like I said there is there's dark humor in it but it, it destroyed her life in the end you know her family stopped speaking to her she, mm. she died alone like in a nursing home with bars on the window with her children never spoke to her after the her scandal? Son, uh, sorry, I'll correct myself. Her son, who is dead, Brian, he did. He he spoke to her. But her daughter, um, Frances, who was a very devoted Catholic, she was just, she was she was a mother herself and married mm-hmm. into the aristocracy. She was just sick of all the tabloid nonsense. Um, she sort of kept her at arm's length and stopped wow. speaking to her. Yeah. It's so tragic. And, 
Yeah, and the newspapers as well. You know, they called her the Dirty Duchess, and they would poke fun at her, and she became sort of the butt of all the jokes. Now, finally, uh, we ask our guest experts the same question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept, that you think is to blame for the Duchess of Argyle scandal, who or what would that be? I would blame my husband. He was the one that opened Pandora's box. And we have to we have to make him, even a death, he has to take ownership of what he did to, to his wife. All because he wants it his own way. Mm. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for no, uh, speaking to us about this topic and also for the intel on the headless man. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash the alarmist. And stay tuned because next week we'll be discussing the downfall of WeWork. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST. 